Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. It occurred to me that I have one more announcement to make. Um, I forgot to make earlier. Two of the ABFs this morning, the Revelation and the John ABF, will be joined for a joint ABF, minus Dave Lample's class, where we will be covering the entire Old Testament history in six minutes. You don't want to miss that? Six minutes, entire Old Testament history. It'll be, it'll be a good time. Um, so please open to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to finish the fifth chapter of 1 Timothy. We're rapidly drawing to a close of our study of this epistle. Um, and in this section, Paul gives Timothy instruction regarding leaders. Um, and I think there's much for us to learn here, much um, to encourage us in our faith here. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous going before them to judgment. The sins of others appear later, so also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Lord God, we just um, pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Pray that your Holy Spirit would give the increase. And we pray that you would help us to apply these truths to our life. Lord, we are so thankful for the leaders you've given this church. And just pray that you would um, help us now to understand how we are to regard and relate to them. Jesus' name, amen. Text breaks down into three chunks we'll look at. But I want to address something right off the bat. This, this is instruction for all of us on how we are to interact with, regard, view our leaders that Christ has given this church. And this applies to everyone equally. This isn't for everyone but the elders and leaders. This is for everyone. Because one of the things that I think is beautiful and wise of God in establishing that his church be run by a plurality of elders is every single individual elder is subject to the totality. So it's not as though there are those in charge and those not in charge, and this is instruction for those who are not in charge. This is instruction for everybody on how we are to regard, how we are to interact with and view those leaders in the church that Christ has given us. So this is for everybody, not just some people, but everybody. And so as we look at the first two verses, we're going to deal with Compensation. Compensation. Verses 17 to 18. Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. Notice the elders. Again, this notion of plurality. Not a single person, but a plurality of people. And right off the bat, Paul's focus is that the elders who rule well are deserving of double honor. Deserving of double honor. Now this word for rule well is the exact same word. If you turn back to chapter 3, verse 4, 
speaking of a man who manages his household well. If you can remember from a month or so ago when we looked here in chapter 3, verse 4, in the qualifications for elders, he must manage his own household well. The word literally means standing in front of, standing at the head of. And we talked about how the qualifications for church leadership are simply excelling in the home, excelling in, in the family. Because the church is a family of families. The church is, according to chapter 3, verse 15, the household of God. And so the correlation is strong between the two. And here, these are elders who stand fr the front well. They're managing God's household well. And so the, the instruction then for those who rule well is that they get double honor. And this fits in the theme of honor that was started back in the beginning of chapter 5. Verse 3, honor widows. Make it to elders, double honor. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, servants are to serve their masters as worthy of all honor. So this whole section is a theme of who are we to honor? Who are we to esteem highly? Who are we to interact with? Um, giving them honor. Well, on this list, here are the leaders, the elders of the church. So those elders who rule well are to receive double honor. Now, what, is, what does he mean by double honor? Well, the word time, honor, means giving something its due value. It would include respect. It would include, um, in some cases, admiration. It can also, and clearly in this context, includes pay, remuneration. I mean, the, the two scriptures that he quotes next, not muzzling the ox, and the laborer deserves his wages, makes that clear. Um, so it's this notion of giving something its due respect, its due value, honoring it. And in this context, it clearly means remuneration as well, compensation. Um, and so this is an important thing for us to understand. God has called us um, to those leadership in the church that he has given us that are rightly qualified, especially those who are serving well, that we are to honor and esteem them. Listen to uh, what Paul writes to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13. We were crest of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And then in, in Hebrews 13, 7, remember those who led you and spoke the word of God to you. Consider the result of their conduct and imitate their faith. In Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. That would be unprofitable for you. So we have an instruction, each and every one of us, to have an attitude not of begrudging authority, not of frustrated for being under authority, but rather rejoicing in, um, celebrating, honoring, especially those who are leading well, who are ruling well. In a few minutes, we'll get to, well, what about those who are in sin? Well, Paul's going to deal with that. But for those leaders, those elders, deacons, those men who are serving well, who are ruling well, who are doing their job well, literally the word is axiom. It's axiomatic. That's what we get the word, something is self-evident, that they are deserving of honor and our respect. And I just want to encourage you that there are many ways you can show honor and respect and, and, and give this sort of recognition to the men who are serving. You could tell them. You could write them a card. hope you're praying for them. Um, that this is God's heart for his church, that, that it can be a thankless job. I, I, I know I see how hard the other elders work. 
Um, they work their day jobs. They show up for meetings. Um, and I know it would greatly encourage them if you were to drop them a note, if you were to give them a word of encouragement. It's biblical. It's biblical. Um, third, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And, and between that and our first point, we sort of see the function of elders. What elders primarily engage their time doing. Remember, we saw the qualifications for elders back in chapter 3. But here, this gives us more of a picture of what they do. And what they do is they manage God's household, they oversee and coordinate things in the church, and they labor in preaching and teaching. Now, the word for preaching is logos. It just means speech, speech categories. Counseling would fall under this. What I'm doing now, preaching would be included. Teaching ABFs. It's the ministry of words and speech and doctrine, teaching, content. And this is, this is what the elders are focusing on. They're pouring their time into the oversight and management of the church and the ministries of teaching and doctrine in the church. And those who are, who are laboring in, especially, he says, are worthy of double honor. And here we get some sort of distinction of what our church and many other churches does of having full-time staff elders like me and lay elders or elders who work their continue working day jobs. There's, both patterns are in Scripture. Paul at some times would keep his day job. Sometimes in Philippians he'd receive money from the churches. And so here all the elders are, in, are engaged in oversight. All the elders are engaged in the ministry of words, ministry of doctrine, and some are laboring at it. Some are devoting more time to it than others. In my case, I am freed by the church to spend more of my time doing this. And Paul says those elders that are doing that deserve greater compensation, um, which is exactly what you guys are doing, what this church is doing. Um, Serena and I are very well cared for here, and so this is, I think, a command that Martinsdale understands and is doing well. But just want to encourage you again to, to encourage your leaders. Encourage the men that God has raised up. Let them know that you're thankful for them. Let them know that you appreciate what they're doing. Guard yourself against any spirit of bitterness towards them, of any resentment, of any frustration, and rather let them do their work with joy. So that's um, our first point. Secondly, now, we deal with accusation. Oh, no, no, sorry. We skipped the best point of this whole thing. Sorry. The scripture says, no, many of you who know me well know that 1 Timothy 5.18 is one of my favorite verses, and it's not for the reason you would think guarantee you it's not for the reason you would think. 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul backs up his point. I can't believe we almost missed this. It's unthinkable. Okay, 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now what's so interesting here is look at the bottom of your Bible for the footnotes. What is he quoting? He's quoting Deuteronomy, and he's quoting Luke. This is a word-for-word -word quote in the Greek of Luke 10.7. And the implications of that, if you just stop and think about it, are huge. Okay, I just want you to stop and think about what that implies about the New Testament canon. Well, certainly it means Luke has been written at this point. Because notice he says, the scripture, singular, says, and then he quotes Deuteronomy, and then he quotes Luke. So clearly, Luke's been written. So, so hundreds of years of liberal scholarship that wants to place the authorship of the Gospels in the 3rd or 4th century can just get thrown out the window comfortably because clearly, Paul can't quote Luke if Luke's not written. 
Secondly, and this is what's amazing, Paul esteems the Gospel of Luke on an equal par with Deuteronomy as the Scripture. Now stop and think about that for a second. Paul, who was trained as a rabbi, would never lightly raise some document up to that level unless he fully believed it was Scripture. And so what that means is not only is Luke written, but Paul has recognized it as Scripture. Moreover, Paul assumes that Timothy shares that opinion because he doesn't defend his quotation. I mean, you can imagine how strange it would seem if uh, in the middle of a sermon, I were saying the Scripture says, and then I quote, you know, some modern proverb or advertising jingle. Um, hopefully many of you would, would want to be talking to me after the sermon. So for Paul to say the Scripture says, and then to quote Luke, assumes that Timothy shares that opinion with him. It also assumes that Timothy's been reading Luke, Timothy's perhaps been memorizing Luke, because Paul assumes Timothy can recognize Luke from a half-verse quotation. And so what that means is, as the New Testament was written, Jesus' people, his sheep, heard his voice in the text immediately. They did not need to wait for a council in 311, Council of Constantine, to determine what the New Testament was. I've, I've heard people try to argue that, that we wouldn't have a New Testament if it wasn't for the Council of Constantine in 311 AD. That's not true. When Luke was written, Jesus' people recognized it for what it was. They began quoting it. They began circulating it. And this is an amazing, it's the only New Testament quotation of the New Testament. And it's an amazing testimony to the self-authenticating authority and power of God's word. It did not take a big church council for them to decide what Luke was. Jesus' people recognized it the second they got a hold of it. And they began using it and treating it and interacting with it as if it were scripture. That, that's why that verse to me is so exciting. What happened in 311 was confirming what had happened in the first century when God caused his word to be written. And so, again, it's hidden in there. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think of it. But to me, it's incredibly encouraging um, that Jesus' people recognized his word the second they interacted with it. Okay, now we can move on to our second point. Um, accusation. So, we've seen how we are to regard those leaders, those elders who are doing a good job well, what about those who aren't? I mean, remember, after all, Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus, according to chapter 1, verse 3, to stop certain persons from teaching strange doctrines. And we're going to see that that is going to include probably some of the elders at Ephesus. And so, first we get a word of caution. We get a word of caution. Um, Paul says in verse uh, 19, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, it may seem like elders are getting special treatment here, but they're not. Um, this is what the law prescribes for all people. Paul is specifically concerned in this instance with elders. But um, in, in Deuteronomy 19.15, the law says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. All the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And when Jesus, turn, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18. When Jesus gave us, the church, our marching orders, our instruction on how to deal with sin in the body, he follows the same pattern. He follows the same pattern. And this is important to understand. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. 
is the process which commonly goes by the name of church discipline. But really, this is just about the body cleansing itself, the body dealing with sin. Church discipline really is something that steps one and two should be happening in a healthy body all the time. Occasionally, it gets all the way to the end. But the first step, or one, or one or two dealing with things, should be happening constantly um, in the body. And he writes and says this, Matthew 18, 15 to 17. If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. So there's our pattern. Step one, someone sins, you go privately, you talk to them. They listen to you, praise God. If they don't listen to you and you're still convinced that they're in sin, then you come back with two or three witnesses and you, you talk again. If you win your brother, praise God. If you're still, and you and the witnesses now are still persuaded this person is in sin, then you take it to the leadership in the church. Only then. And so what Paul is, is telling Timothy is, in this word of caution is that even though he's there to clean up house and to, to shut down this false teaching, he is to afford the elders and afford everyone in the church the, the right defense, the, the, um, the safety, that you don't just entertain gossip, you don't just entertain slander, you don't just let one person bring a charge. If somebody were to come um, to one of you with a charge against somebody, really your first question should be, why are you telling me? Haven't you told them? If you've told them and they didn't listen to you, shouldn't you have gone with two or three? So we can entertain a group of two or three. That means that the protocol has been followed. If two or three people come together on something, that means step one has taken place. Step two has taken place. And now it's appropriate to bring in the church body. Um, but that's hard for us because that takes loving people to go talk to somebody. It's far easier to just tell someone else. It's far easier to sit in judgment on somebody else. And so Paul is concerned, as, as he wants Timothy to sort of clean house at Ephesus, that this isn't an excuse now for a sort of McCarthyan witch hunt. This isn't open season for gossip and slander and, and whispering and, and, and sort of talking trash about the church leadership. No, don't even receive, don't even listen, don't even give a hearing to any charge that isn't substantiated. And this is just good counsel for us in general. It's not just true for leaders, it's true for everyone. Scripture regularly condemns gossip. If someone is saying something to you, and, and, and the way you can know if it's gossip is, would this person be saying this if the other person was present? Does this honor the person we're speaking about? Is this causing me to think well of them, or is this causing me to think ill of them? If the answer is no, this is, this is a negative report. This is, this is tempting me to think ill of this person. We should not give it a hearing. What we should be asking is, have you gone and talked to them? No, I haven't. You need to. Well, it's not that. You thought it was important enough to tell me. You should, should go tell them. That, that's, that should be our response. And so Paul puts this safety up, this protection that is everyone's. It's not just for elders. It's for everyone. And he wants it rigidly enforced. Secondly, where there is an establishment of sin, where there is, and the key is unrepentant sin in the Greek it's, it's a progressive, ongoing action. Those who continue in sin, the ESV translates. 
rebuke in the presence of all. And again, this is just following Matthew 18. You take one. You go by yourself privately. You take two or three. You bring it to the church. So this isn't a special ordering. Paul is simply applying the instruction our Lord gave to this specific case. And so where there's sin, and, and in this case, the sin is probably strange doctrine, quarrelsomeness. These are the symptoms that he has said typify these false teachers, the asceticism, um, the arguing over genealogies and myths. Right? He's, to, he's to deal with it. Buke them publicly. And, and notice that the purpose of church discipline has at least two purposes. First, for the good of the individual. But here the focus is for the purity of the body so that the rest of the elders, the rest of the church would, would take God seriously, would take truth seriously. And we have an example of this in Galatians 2. You don't need to turn there, but it's where Paul publicly rebuked um, Peter. In Galatians um, chapter 2, he tells the account. He says, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision, and the rest of the Jews joined in hypocrisy, with which the result that even Barnabas was carried away in their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Now, I think we can assume here that Paul has tried to speak to Peter privately. But because this is a matter of the gospel, living the gospel out, what was going on is, in the gospel, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. In the gospel, there is one new man, one new body. In the gospel, the people of Jesus Christ are not bound by the law. But this was something that took the Jewish segment of the church a while to wrap their heads around. I mean, remember, all their life, all their culture, all their history, there were certain things you didn't eat, you didn't touch, you didn't wear. And all of a sudden, it's okay. Well, it took them a while to wrap their heads around it, and some of them were kind of holding on to it, trying to force the Gentiles, actually, to keep the food laws. And so Peter was kind of flip-flopping. When this group from Jerusalem wasn't present, he'd hang out, eat a burger with the Gentiles, and when this group was present, they'd stand aloof. And so Paul rebukes him publicly. Uh, one commentator says, he said, Peter, you got ham on your breath. Um, which might be, a, might be a loose translation of the passage. Um, and so we've got an example of it. We've got an example of this. Public rebuke. Um, sadly, this is something we've had to do in the, in the past few months. It doesn't happen regularly. The, the good news is that regularly, steps one and two correct the process. A brother goes to an erring brother. They say, hey, I don't know if you noticed, but this is out of line. The person says, thanks. That's generally what happens. But notice, the, the leadership isn't exempt. On the one hand, they're to be honored, who are doing a good job, but they're not above reproach. They're not above the law. Um, and so where there's anyone in error, anyone in sin, and especially the leadership because of the high standards they're to live by, they're to be publicly rebuked if they will not repent. And then Paul brings in um, sort of a charge or an oath, and it's pretty strong here. It's pretty strong. He says in verse um, 21, I want you to see how he stacks this up. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels. 
So that's, that's pretty, it's a pretty powerful group of people right here. The living God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the heavenly host of unfallen angels. In, the, in their presence, I charge you, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And I think it's as if Paul recognizes this is going to be hard. Timothy's a young man. You can just imagine how difficult this is. Timothy's a young man. He's left at Ephesus. Paul hoped to be there to do this task for him. He's delayed, and so he writes a letter. The letter authorizes Timothy to do what he's about to do. And what he's about to do is shut down, and in some cases, discipline elders. That'd be, that'd be pretty intimidating. So on the one hand, Paul says, look, you give them the full protection that Christ has given them. You don't entertain slander. You don't entertain unsubstantiated accounts. But where there is evidence of sin, where there is evidence of false teaching, you, 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 you expose it. You rebuke it. You, you publicly deal with it. Just as Paul did. If you turn back to the end of chapter 1, he gives us an example of two men that he did this, talking about these false teachers, the same charge. You turn back to chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience by rejecting this. Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, of whom I have handed over to Satan, that may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul's already begun this. He wants Timothy to continue it on. And he's anticipating that this is going to be challenged. This is going to be intimidating. And so he gives him a strong charge. Telling Timothy, but in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and the heavenly host of angels, I charge you to do this and to do it well without prejudice, without favoritism. On the one hand, there's, there's, two, there's two errors. One, Timothy could be cavalier about this, and it could become sort of the McCarthyan witch hunt. On the other hand, he could just be too timid to deal with it. It's hard. This is where probably most of the American church falls. Church discipline is hard, and, and people threaten lawsuits, and, and it's, it's not looked as kind, and unbelievers may not want to come to our church if they show up and see us doing it. And, and so we don't do it as often as we should. And so this charge should, should show us the importance of this. The importance of doing it well, not in a cavalier, judgmental, witch hunt sort of attitude, but doing it. Paul is so concerned about the purity of the church that he says, Timothy, don't you dare neglect this. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be challenging. In the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of his angels, do this and do it well. You get the priority here for purity in the church. This all ties back to his theme in writing. I, I left you here to set things in order, to stop certain people from teaching. And you see Paul's passion for truth and love coming together because where there is false teaching, there will be false living. So this is how Timothy is to deal with accusations. On the one hand... Don't, don't let this become a gossip slander fest. Don't receive unsubstantiated accusations. But where there is evidence and where there is unrepentance, publicly expose it. And then basically an oath, a charge, that Timothy not balk or turn away from doing this. Thirdly, 
We'll look at ordinations. We've got compensation, accusation, and now ordination. Ordination. Verses 22 to 25. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So we're just going to look at four things here. First, the encouragement not to be hasty to lay on hands. And the laying on of hands is some form of ordination, and I don't necessarily mean what we mean by ordination. Usually ordination is a procedure for pastors, um, this is simply the, uh, the authorizing, the empowering, the recognizing of someone for ministry. They laid hand of, on Paul and Barnabas before they went off on their missionary journeys. Timothy had previously had hands laid on him, equipping him for his ministry. And it seems, the picture we get here is that when someone was recognized, made an elder, there was a laying on of hands. It's symbolically recognizing someone's fitness for ministry equipping them for ministry. And so I think the point here is as this whole issue is focusing on elders, honoring the good elders, dealing with the bad elders, now we're looking at making, recognizing new elders. He tells Timothy not to rush it. Not to rush it. Don't be hasty. And this is in keeping with what he said previously about the qualifications of an elder. Turn back to chapter um, 3. An elder, remember... According to verse 6, must not be a recent convert. Um, they need to have a history of maturity. They need to have a track record of fruit. You know, one of the, one of the dangers can be someone comes to faith and they're zealous and they're excited and they've got gifts. It can be a danger to put that someone like that in a position of leadership and ministry. Um, it always discourages me whenever some celebrity becomes a Christian, they immediately head up some ministry. I don't think it's a terribly good idea. Uh, I was actually kind of encouraged by Kirk Cameron, his way the master thing, because what he did is he teamed up with somebody established in ministry, Ray Comfort, and they do the way of the master thing together. I was actually encouraged that a celebrity like Kirk Cameron didn't begin Kirk Cameron Ministries, which is usually what happens. Um, no, rather... We are not to be hasty in making someone, putting someone in church leadership. They need, they need to be examined. There needs to be a confidence that they are who they appear to be. Um, our church doesn't rush into doing these things. And that's, that's good. So we're not to be hasty. Secondly, he says, don't take part in the sins of others. Now, there's two things that could be meant here. On the one hand, it could be a reference to by hastily laying on hands, by hastily making someone an elder without doing your homework, um, you could put someone in the position of authority and in some sense be validating a person who's sinning, a person who's in error. I, I don't think that's as much what it means. It's possible that's what it means. More, I just think Paul is telling Timothy that while he's being careful, while he's examining people, to keep looking to himself. I mean, after all, that's the same word of encouragement he gave in chapter 4 after telling Timothy to resist and be aware of these false teachers. He tells him, um, in verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. It's the same encouragement Paul gives the uh, Galatians when he says to them, um, 
If anyone is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness, taking heed to yourself, lest you also be tempted. We've just come out of a section dealing with rebuking elders. We've just come out of a section on dealing with the sin of others. In your minds, Timothy, watch out for yourself while you're doing this. Watch out for yourself. Don't, don't partake in the sins of others. And then he says to keep yourself pure. Keep yourself pure. So do not be hasty. Do not take part in other sins. Keep yourself pure. And here he adds in his instruction about drinking a little wine for his stomach, which I'll be honest with you, when, you, when I first read this, it just seems kind of odd that he throws this in. But it's the mark of authenticity. Again, if someone were faking this, if someone, as some theorized, wrote this hundreds of years later, they would have hardly added something like this in. Now, Paul, Paul cares for Timothy, and, and Timothy's trying to keep himself pure. It's possible that Timothy may have bought into some of the asceticism, the rigorous treatment, or it may just be that Timothy had convinced and decided in his own conscience not to drink alcohol. Paul, who's good friends with Luke, the doctor, tells him, Timothy, because of your stomach issues, take a little wine with your water. Um, it, it was a common practice in that day to purify your water with a little wine. Um, Proverbs talks about the, the medicinal use of, of wine and some alcohol. And so Paul's telling Timothy, keep yourself pure and, and keep yourself strong and to keep yourself ready for ministry. It's just a little personal touch. Um, there's, there's not a deep meaning for us in the text here, except that God's given us medicine. He's given us things. We need to keep ourselves spiritually ready, but, you know, sometimes we may need to go see a doctor too, and that's important. Um, Timothy's stomach ailments can slow him down, and Paul's concerned about that as well. Um, it's, it's also interesting to note Paul does not rebuke Timothy for not having enough faith to be healed of the stomach ailments. He tells him to take some wine. Um, just, just, just keep that one tucked away, and when you meet certain people, you can, anyway. Um, yeah, he, he, you know, poor Timothy. Okay. And then we get to this closing section, um, which is really profound, frightening, encouraging, all at the same time. He tells Timothy as he's, as he's being careful and, and being patient and not being hasty, and as he's looking to himself, he lets him know that, he says, the sins of some men go before them are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. The sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. What, he, what he's saying is this. There are some people whose sinful lives are so obvious, so self-evident, they're easy to recognize where they're at with God. Um, certain sins are much more public. Drunkenness, drug use, um, a person who beats people up regularly and flies off into a temper. You're, you're going to see those types of things usually coming a mile away. Some men's sins are conspicuous. They're obvious. You know this person is, is having some trouble. This person's struggling. This person's not where they should be maturity-wise. But there are other sins that aren't so obvious. Pride, self-righteousness, lust, um, self-confidence, envy. Th those don't show up as easily. And this is, again, part of Paul's reason for telling Timothy to, to hold off, not, not to rush, not to be in a hurry making people elders because each man's fruit will be evident in time. Sometimes it takes some time. It takes getting to know somebody. It takes being in their home. It takes getting to know them to really see where they're at. I, if you think about it, I'm sure there are people you've met that initially been very impressed with. They look like very religious, godly people. 
and then you get to know him a little better. I mean, I remember we had a young man stay in our house um, for two or three months before he got married. It helped him out and helped him save some money. This is back when we were in California. And when he moved out, I sort of sat down and just sort of did a debrief with him. His name was Eric, and Eric said to me, and he wasn't trying to be rude. It was really cute. He said, you know, Jeremy, I thought way too highly of you before I lived with you. <laughs> well, it's true, right? It's Anthony, amen? Amen. Um, and, and so, no, it, 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 sometimes it takes getting to know someone. You know, he's somebody who saw me from a distance. We were friends, and then he saw me in my home, and he got a more balanced picture of who I am. Um, and, and that's what it takes sometimes. It takes getting to know people. And so, on the one side, there's a, there's a warning that your sins will find you out. You know, we can put on a good front. We can uh, clean up the more obvious sins, the bigger sins, the um, public sins, but we can have the inside of the cup dirty. We can clean the outside of the cup. The inside can be full of dead men's bones. And in time, though, that's going to come out. In time, that's going to be evident. So Paul tells Timothy, don't, don't be in a rush. Now, the converse is also true, which is encouraging. The converse is true. The good fruit is evident. And some of it is really obvious, and you see it. And others, it takes a time coming up. But in time, each tree will be known by its fruit. In time, that will become clear to all. Turn, turn to Matthew chapter 7. Jesus warns about false teachers using the same sort of um, principle here. Matthew 7. Fifteen to twenty. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A tree cannot, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And that's true. And, and Paul's saying just sometimes it takes a little time. Sometimes it takes a little time to get to know people. Some people's fruit is right out there for all to see. Others, it's, it's hidden. It's more buried. Likewise, good fruit. Some, some people's good fruit is just right there. I got a friend who just can't help but witness everywhere he goes. He just shares his faith. You, you spend any amount of time with him. You're like, okay, man, this is somebody who loves the gospel. Not everyone I know does that. But there are other people who, as I spend time with them and I learn about their prayer life, I learn about what they spend their time doing, I think, man, this is a godly person. And it also reminds us that, that the people that we see as the big shots and the stars um, in God's program on earth may not be the, the, there might be some unsung heroes. C.S. Lewis in his uh, book, The Great Divorce, talks about a sightseeing trip that goes up to heaven and, and one of the men on the sightseeing trip sees somebody arriving, somebody who's just died, arriving to heaven and there's this massive fanfare and celebration held in their honor and he says, who is that? Is that? And he begins to guess at some religious leaders and the angel giving him the tour guide says, oh no, that's Sarah Smith from the little country town of Ensworth. 
you, you wouldn't know about her, but she's big news up here. And there are some people whose godly fruit, their prayer lives, they're on their knees, they're prayer warriors, they're, they're just holy people, and God is taking notice. And I, and I just want to close our time by just reading a word of encouragement um, from, from uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the last verse in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You know, maybe some of you here today are, are at work honoring God, at work serving Him. You're not receiving much recognition. You're not receiving much um, attention. You may feel overlooked. I mean, some of, the, some of the people I think are in some of the toughest spots people who are persevering in difficult situations with little to no attention, with little to no anyone being aware of what's going on. As, as a brother I meet with pretty regularly who's in a situation like that, and my heart breaks for him. He's just persevering in a difficult situation with little to no attention. And, and the good news is our fruit will be known. And it may be at the resurrection of the just. It may be at the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it will be brought to light. And your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your good works will be evident. If not now, then later. And I think that's an encouraging word for all of us. So just to summarize where we've been, the instruction for our regarding leaders, those who are doing well, we're to honor, we're to esteem, we're to encourage. Those who are in sin, we are to, to, to deal with. Not, not in a gossipy, busybody way, but in a legitimate way, establishing the facts. And, and as we receive new elders, new leaders. We're not to be in a rush. We're to examine people's lives, examine their godliness. This is how the Lord God would have us think about, relate to, and be interacting with leadership of, of, of his church. Um, and so there's, there's much for us here. People to honor, people to hold to holiness. And so I just want to close in a word of prayer, praying that the Lord God would help us to do this. Help us to do this. It doesn't come naturally. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the men that you've raised up in this church. We thank you for their labor, their work in overseeing, in, in looking after the teaching and preaching ministries, Lord. We thank you that you've raised up godly men. And we pray that you would help us to honor them, help us to encourage them, help us to let them do their work with joy, not with sorrow. Lord, we pray for their holiness. We pray for their integrity, Lord, and, and where there is a breach of it, we pray that you would give us the love and the boldness to address it, not to look the other way. Lord God, we, we just thank you for raising up the men you've raised up, and we know that you are in the process of even raising up more men, and so we pray that you would give us the wisdom to recognize them, that we would not be hasty either, that we would recognize your gifts to your church. You've not left us as orphans. You've left us each other. You've left us your body. And in your body, you've left us um, godly, gifted men. For that, we thank you. And we pray that you would help us to persevere in faith, knowing that our work is not in vain in you. In Jesus' name, amen.